Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, good morning, Candeo family. How are we doing today? Awesome. It's good to see you. Bright and early. Feels a bit earlier than usual. Guys, today we're going to be talking about prayer. Now, it's kind of odd to me that uh, prayer is probably one of the most intimidating things for Christians. And here's, here's how I measure this. Like, if you want to drastically change the temperature of a room, even a room of Christians, just ask everybody, say, hey, let's, let's pray. Like, you've been here, like, you've experienced this before on a Sunday morning where we say, all right, I want you to turn to your neighbor, especially the introverts hate this because just talking to other people in general. But when we say, hey, hey, turn to your neighbor and just pray, you can feel this nervousness build in the room. Right? Or maybe some of you, you're in like a connection group or a Bible study, you felt this, right? When all of a sudden the leader looks across the room and says, all right, would somebody like to open us up in prayer? Just silence. Right? Prayer can be intimidating. You've also, maybe if you've not experienced it in those two environments, like those family gatherings, do you have Easter's about to come up? And you've had that moment where you circle up as a family and, and there's kind of like two things going on. One is, you know, it'd be a jerk thing to jump into line first for food. So you kind of like all stand there in the kitchen and then somebody looks kind of around the group's like, well, like somebody should pray for this, right? Like somebody, and it's like that childhood game, you know, where you almost want to put your finger in your nose like as quick as possible, just like not it, not it, not it, not it. I, I have this, this uh, awesome uh, family gathering that we have where it's not really like a prayer, it's more like a statement, you know, when we get together, it's like, thank you for this, that, and the troops. Like, it kind of comes out, and, and like our eyes are open, we're just staring at each other. Like, it's just, it's weird. And that's how sometimes prayer can be for us. Like, it's an intimidating thing, which is, is odd, because I think that's true even for those who would call themselves Christians and have called themselves Christians for a long time. And if you ask somebody, hey, like, would you pray? Like, ah, I don't know. And you ask, like, why? Why, why not? The most common answer I get is, I, I, don't really, I don't really know how to pray. Yet we could quote this prayer, right? What we just had right over. We could quote this prayer word for word, but we've totally missed not only how this prayer teaches us, like, what we can pray, but also, like, how we're supposed to pray, and so I want to bring those things together today. I want today to be a day where you walk out of here going, okay, I now understand even using a prayer that I have memorized, I've recited so many times, how that helps me know how to pray. So my goal this morning is to essentially eliminate the intimidation factor of prayer and then give some tracks to run on for how to pray using Jesus's words, because it'll be Jesus that teaches us how to pray. It's Jesus who said, Whenever you pray, pray like this. So we're going to dive in. It's interesting that the first thing that Jesus addresses this morning actually is how not to pray before he goes into how to pray, which is helpful for us to understand that there is a non-Christian way to pray and a Christian way to pray. So he says two things about, hey, here's how not to pray. The first thing that he says is he says, don't perform to be seen. Don't perform to be seen. Look at verse five with me in chapter six, Matthew chapter six, verse five. He says, whenever you pray, again, note that whenever Jesus assumes and expects that we will in fact pray. 
He says, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to stand in front of the synagogues and pray on street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. Okay, notice here, he's not bashing public prayer. Like, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites who pray publicly, period. Right? Public prayer is not the problem. So don't get this in your head that these things are mutually exclusive, that Jesus doesn't want us to ever pray publicly and only in secret. Well, what's he, he's, he's, what's he trying to highlight? The problem of this public prayer is that it's motivated by the desire to be seen by others. Jesus is addressing, like he did last week, our heart motivations here. Because guys, we got to keep this simple. The goal of prayer is God. But when all of a sudden we get so insecure in our relationship with God and kind of pivot our attention to carry more what others think about us than what God thinks about us, all of a sudden prayer moves from this opportunity to connect with God to performing in front of others. Jesus calls this type of person a hypocrite. The, the Greek word behind that word hypocrite is actually the word actor. What he's talking about here is he's talking about the person whose religion is theatrical and prayer is just another part of the performance. The prayers are long, they're dramatic, they're full of spiritual words and they leave other people in awe. I, I, I remember I have a grandfather who was like this. Every time we got together and we prayed, I don't know why he took on this prayer language and it was like all the these and thou started to come out, but like they were always misplaced, you know? And, but as like just trying to get us all to be like, wow, most spiritual guy I know, which I already loved my grandfather. I didn't need all of that, but, but he's talking about like these types of people that have long dramatic prayers full of spiritual words. They leave people in awe, but that's all they're gonna get. If the goal of your prayers are performance, to get people to think well of you, that's all you're going to get. That's all you're going to get. So it's easy for me to like point to other people and go, oh, this, I know what that looks like. I've seen this person, that person, this person do this thing. Let me just ask you, because I, I don't want you to miss this. I think this is meant to hit us harder than maybe we initially think. Can I just ask you, when you pray, what's often your primary motivation? Is it God or is it what others are thinking about you? Like when you're praying, like particularly with other people and maybe even they're praying before you, are you actually engaged and in agreement with their prayers? Are you already trying to think through nervously? Well, what am I gonna say when it's my turn? Because eventually, it's going to come to me, and I want to make sure that people don't think I don't know anything about God, or I don't want to say something stupid. What often motivates your prayers? First thing Jesus says on how not to pray, don't perform to be seen by others. His corrective is this. 
But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, Jesus is not just advocating for one at the exclusion of the other, that we should only have secret prayer and never any public prayer. But I think what he's trying to get to here is that our public prayer is supposed to be the overflow of private prayer. He's trying to get our alignment right. So if your public prayers are frequent and full of energy and super vibrant, but your private prayer life is non-existent, you're out of alignment and need to hear these words. Is your public praying the overflow of your private praying? Jesus goes on. This is the second thing he says on how not to pray. He goes into it in verses seven and eight. He says, and when you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles since they imagine that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. If the first thing that Jesus said, hey, is don't perform to be seen. Now he's saying, don't babble to be heard. The picture behind this word babble is like thoughtless and meaningless words, just almost on repeat, just just being stated without any heart behind it. Which, guys, can I just point out some irony here? Maybe like this isn't lost on you. It's ironic to me that the context surrounding what we call the Lord's Prayer is actually Jesus warning us not to repeat a prayer over and over and over again without any heart behind it. Like that's the context that surrounds the Lord's Prayer, which is probably the prayer that has been most like babbled prayer of all time. That wasn't his desire, that it would just become robotic, just the thing that we would do, just the thing that we'd say and we, we don't even grasp, we don't even wrestle through what we're praying. And the issue here, guys, is not just that it's a thoughtless prayer. Right? That's not just the issue, but it's this belief that if we pray long enough, if we get the words just right, then God will hear us. That's what he's talking about there in verse 7. Since they imagine that they'll be heard for their many words, that if I pray long enough, if I get the words just right, then I know that God will hear me. That Greek word that's even translated there, many words, literally means anxious words. Anxious words. We don't have to babble to be heard anxiously, nervously, trying to pray long enough, getting the words just right for God to hear us. Guys, this, understand this. This is what makes Christian prayer different than all other kinds of prayer. Because it's not about whether you've lit enough incense and made enough sacrifices for God to hear you. It's not about if you've fasted enough or if you're pointed the right direction. It's not about if you said enough Hail Marys and Our Fathers or if you've ended every request by saying in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. When it comes to Christian prayer, we don't have to earn God's ear. It's given us in Christ. Just like we don't earn relationship with God, it's given us in Christ. We don't have to earn God's ear in prayer. It's given to us in Christ. So we don't have to babble to be 
heard. In fact, we can approach God with the absolute confidence that he already knows what you need. He cares abundantly and wants to meet with you. And he'll take care of you. So Jesus starts by saying, hey, here's how not to pray. Don't perform to be seen. Don't babble to be heard. But it's interesting, verse 8 presents a problem for most Christians, right? Go back to it, read it, right? Because your father knows the things that you need before you ask him. So here's the problem that most Christians have. They're like, well, okay, so if God already knows what I need, then what do I pray about? It was Jake that kind of gave this like simple picture. He's like, I mean, if Santa Claus already knows what I want, why do I send the letter? Right? I think many of us can have that approach with God. Like, well, if he already knows what I want, then why would I, why would I pray? And it brings up this question of then, okay, so if we know how not to pray, then like, how are we to pray? And like, what should we pray for? Okay. And Jesus provides a model. Notice here in verse 9, he says, Therefore, you should pray like this. He's not saying you should pray this. Like this is some prescriptive prayer that should be repeated over and over again. It's the only thing that you pray. It's a model, not a straitjacket. It's a guide. When you pray, you should pray like this. And in teaching us to pray... Jesus starts with what we would call like the approach. He's essentially answering the question, okay, Jesus, who, who am I talking to here and, and what do I call them? Guys, in these, these words that have put me into tears multiple times this week. But he begins with these incredible words, our Father. When you pray, pray like this. Start with our Father. Guys, I imagine that like when an orphan is brought into a new home, brought into a new family, right? There's, there's that like wild ride of moving from kind of the broken world that I was a part of and now into this new home that I imagine this orphan sitting at the edge of their new bed, talking to their new brother and their new home. And he looks at his older brother and says, so uh, what do I call, you know, what, 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 I, what do I call them? And the elder brother gets this big smile that comes across his face and he looks at his new brother and he says, you call him dad. You call him dad. Guys, this is what I meant earlier when I said we don't have to earn God's ear. It's given us in Christ. Our elder brother's death, Jesus' death, purchased for us an eternal family, and God embraces us as an eternal father. That's what we have when we as spiritual orphans place our faith in Christ. We receive all the gifts that God has for us in Jesus. 
And in that moment, we move from being spiritual orphans to sons and daughters. This is what Romans 8 is talking about when it says that you do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Those two words are so foundational for us as we enter into prayer. And guys, what's heartbreaking is so many of us still pray like orphans and not sons and daughters. If you're from like a Catholic background, you maybe still have some of that in your mind that's like, well, I can't go directly to God I don't know if he wants to hear from me. And so, um, let, me, let me pray to one of the saints and maybe they can take my request before God. Or, or even that mindset that some people have of like wanting to ask like holy people to pray for them. Like, hey, like I want your prayers because if you pray for me, those will really, really happen. Which James does tell us like, hey, if you're sick, call upon the elders. There is a, a delight in pulling in others to pray, but you feel an unhealthy distance. You're praying like orphans, not sons and daughters. Or it's, or it's the, the type of person that takes on like a special like prayer language when you pray. And when I say prayer language, I'm not talking about like speaking in tongues. I'm talking about like the type of person like when they pray, you're like, your voice never sounds like that. Like you have like a prayer voice. And whenever you pray, like you start using words like my grandpa did, like, like you never talk like that. Like, but, but in that person's mind is this unhealthy feeling of like, well, if I'm gonna approach God though, I gotta get the words just right in order to get him to want to hear from me. And guys, when I just pull back and I look at these two words here of our father, and then I reflect on my own relationship with my kids. Guys, I'm telling you, Nothing would pain me more than if I have a relationship with one of my kids and all of a sudden they begin to think that they can't talk to me directly but need to like ask one of their siblings to talk to me for them. Or they begin to feel like as they walk into my presence, they get all nervous trying to figure out, I, I don't know if this is going to come out right or these words, that. As a father, nothing would be more heartbreaking When Jesus gives us this model prayer and he starts it off with the words, our father, he's laying for us the most important foundation to prayer. And that is our prayers are built on the foundation of a relationship with a child and their father, unshakable, deep and rich, a father who knows and cares abundantly. And every time we pray to him, welcomes us like his children. Those words are important. But after the approach, then Jesus breaks into kind of six parts of this prayer. Kind of six requests that he lays out there. And they kind of break down like this. So I'll put this on the screen behind me. They kind of break down like this. Starting first with these first three requests of the worship of the Father, the kingdom of the Father, the will of the Father, and then moving to the provision of the Father, the grace of the Father, and the protection of the Father. And I want to walk through these kind of quickly. We'll pick up in the second part of verse 9. 
When Jesus continues to teach us how to pray, he says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The focus of this prayer, it begins first with God, and there's a great tension that's that's here, right? Because while we approach God as Father, we also approach him as our King, high and exalted, holy and sovereign. That's a tension that we as Christians have to walk in. That yes, God is close and near to us. He's also high and holy. So we start with our Father in heaven, but then we move into praying, your name be honored as holy. See, holy is kind of a churchy word, and so I always want to make sure that when we read it, I don't take for granted that you understand what that word means. So simplest definition I can give you for the word holy is this. It just simply means different. Like if you said that that's a holy building or that's a, that's a holy bowl or, or a holy like table or whatever, what you're essentially saying about that table and that, that bowl, that building, is just different than everything else around it. And so what we're praying here when we say your name be honored as holy is not that we're praying for God to be more holy. He already isn't. That, that's impossible, okay? He is holy. He is surrounded by six-winged creatures who constantly yell out day and night, holy, holy, holy. This is who God is. But what we're praying for is that he would be honored as holy by myself and by those around me, praying that there would be a right awe about who God is in my life and in the world around me. That God would be seen as different and worshiped and celebrated because there's just no one like him. Jesus continues, he encourages us to pray, your kingdom come. We've talked about the kingdom of God a lot here within the Sermon on the Mount series. And one of the things that we've tried to make abundantly clear is that when it comes to the kingdom of God, we live in an already and not yet kingdom. And what we mean is this, is that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus but also has not yet fully come. And so what we're praying for when we're praying here for the kingdom of God to come, I think we can pray one of these three things. And I think they all kind of fit within this in praying that your kingdom come. Number one, we're praying for others and for their salvation, that the kingdom of God would move into their lives, that Jesus' reign and rule would capture more and more hearts. That's how the kingdom of God exists in the day and age that we live in. It's moving and advancing through human hearts as God captures one more life and another life and another life. And so we pray your kingdom come. We're praying for more people to enter into that kingdom. But another way that we're praying that is not just praying that for others, I'm also praying that for myself. There's parts of my heart that have not yet moved and been transformed from sin to holiness. So you think about the things that we've talked about so far in the Sermon on the Mount series where God wants to see his people defined by his rule and reign. And so we're praying things like, God, help me not to be defined by anger, but by forgiveness. Help me not to be defined by lust and adultery, but by purity. Help me not to be defined by divorce and brokenness in relationships, but forgiveness and reconciliation. Help me not to be defined by greed, but generosity. All of these things, praying that in your kingdom would come, even in my life, more and more. But I also think another way that Jesus means as we pray, your kingdom come, 
is that we are looking forward and pleading for God to bring the day that Jesus will come back and all the sad things in the world that we know would become untrue. Guys, every week we end this service by saying, hey, we'll see you next week. I hope one of these weeks that doesn't happen. I long for the day that Jesus comes back. One of the last phrases of our Bible says, come, Lord Jesus, come. What a prayer. Jesus, come back and take this world, call game over, and bring your people to live with you where justice will reign, goodness will reign, sickness will be no more. There'll be no more crying, no more tears. The old thing's gone, the new things have come. And it seems pretty natural that if you're praying for the kingdom of God to come, that you would also pray for God's will to be done, right? Because if I'm praying for God's kingdom to move and advance in my life and in the lives of those around me, it seems pretty fitting then that I should be praying that God's will, that his desires for me and for my world would become reality in me and our world. So that's how Jesus encourages us to pray at least with the first half. Now, I just want to pause here for a second and swing back to something and make sure you're, you're making a very obvious observation at this point. Can I just ask you real quick, what has been the focus of our prayer to this point that Jesus gives us? I even put it there in yellow. What's been the focus? God. God. I don't want you to miss this. This is really, really important because for many of us, what defines our prayers is that we're asking God constantly to orient himself around our agenda. And guys, I'm telling you, nothing has been more revolutionary for me in my prayers than when I recognize that prayer is not about trying to get God to orient around my agenda, but seeking God and getting myself to orient around his. And when you pray and get that part right, you get that flipped the right direction. Prayer is about seeking God and orienting yourself around his agenda that will dramatically change your prayers. You move from saying regularly, God, I want, I want, I want, to going, God, you want, you want, you want. One of the most like practical tips I want to give you today for prayer and how to like help yourself get this right. This has been so helpful for me and keeping myself from falling into the I want ditch and getting into the, the healthy spot of going, you want, you want, is what I do is I often start my day just in the scriptures. And the reason I do that is very purposeful because as I read God's word, I'll just go through and I'll just highlight stuff as I go along. And then I'll come back to that after I've done like reading the, the spot of the Bible that I want to read. I'll come back to it and I'll use that as a springboard for prayer. That's one of the things that's really helped me get away from like what I want into focusing more on what God wants. So something I've been meditating on lately is Romans 2.4 that says it's God's kindness, his patience with us that's meant to lead toward our repentance. And I remember reading once that one of the great dangers within our world is that people can mistake God's kindness or his patience with them for his approval. Well, I've been doing this this whole time. I, 
Seems like God doesn't really care what I'm doing. I'm just living my life. And they mistake God's kindness, his patience for his approval, not recognizing that those things are meant to lead to repentance. And so I've just been meditating on that and using that as a springboard for prayer, just praying for friends that I know and friends that I have that don't know Christ, praying that as God delays and not yet coming back another day, they'd recognize that his patience is just abundant for them and he's longing for them to see his goodness, his kindness, his patience. Trust him. God, I know you want this. Even just looking at our text today, God, I know that you want me to worship you and to cry out to you, to, to give generously out of a pure heart with pure motivations. But God, I so often do my acts of righteousness with a desire to be seen by others. God, help me. You want, you want, and that becomes the springboard for prayer. And then Jesus continues in this prayer. And now he starts moving from focusing on God's agenda to now toward our needs. Verse 11, he says, Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus now teaches us to pray for our necessities, not luxuries, to pray for our daily bread. I think anything that's like daily that you need for life fits here. As what I've experienced in my life is that rarely God gives me what I want, but he always gives me what I need. I'm not sure if you've experienced the same things, but it seems like rarely God gives me what I want, but he always gives me what I need. And I've learned to love that about God. And I've learned to pray this prayer more regularly because what I recognize is if I'm just left to my own devices, guys, what I'll do when it comes to pray is I'll pray for way more than I need. I'll get way beyond even what I want, like all the way into like, like pure, like just too much. I mean, just opulence, right? Moving into that category and, and, the thing that terrifies me, and now it's got me into this point where I realize the wisdom of praying for daily bread is I'm praying now more, God, give me just enough to know that you're with me and that you're faithful to me, but not too much that I would ever get off my knees and stop being desperate for you. I think that's the beauty of praying for daily bread. Just enough to let us see God's faithfulness, but not too much that we'd get off our knees and stop being desperate for God to come through for us. God, give me, give me that perfect amount. And what you'll notice here as he walks through these, kind of these last three requests is each one of these is linked together by the word and. That's different than the first list of three, but each one of these now like builds. Pray for this and this and this, as if to say that just having full bellies and a roof over your heads is not sufficient for life. You need these other things as well. You need the grace of the Father. You need the protection of the Father. So in verse 12, he builds on just praying for our daily bread and encourages us to pray and pray, God, forgive us our debts as we've also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus is telling us to pray that the grace of the Father would redefine our lives. There's a causal relationship here, and it's really important that we not get this backwards. 
But there's a causal relationship between forgiveness and offering forgiveness. You could read verse 15 and be tempted to start getting this backwards. Oh, I guess it must be like forgiving people are forgiven. Nope, that's not true. That would be totally contrary to everything else the Bible says about the gospel. It's not that. But he's bringing these two things together, and we shouldn't separate these because they're, they're causal. Forgiven people forgive. And whenever there's a disconnect between those two things, there is a complete misunderstanding, misapplication of the grace of God in our lives. It should catch our attention that in this section where Jesus talks about prayer and how to pray, the thing that he talks about more than anything else is letting the grace of God not only come to us, but then move through us as we interact with those around us. This part of the prayer should cause us to probe kind of the inner dark spots of our hearts and ask, is there just undealt with bitterness in here and brokenness that you have with another person? where for some reason you have recognized you're a complete sinner and begged God for forgiveness and you've gotten it from him, though that gap between you and them, the brokenness that existed between you and God was huge, that that's happened, but somehow this minor offense, at least comparatively minor offense, you can't let it go. We're praying here for the grace of God to redefine our lives. And then lastly, verse 13. Lord, Father, do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That word temptation could also be translated like testing. And what, what we're getting at here is that we recognize, like, guys, trials testing, which come from the sovereign hand of God, those will inevitably come. Every one of us over the course of our lives are going to experience trials and testing that come from God, that are for our good. That's what James 1 tells us. But what he's praying for here is that these trials, this testing would not run so deep that it would tempt us to sin against God in the midst of them. That God, yes, when these things come, Hold my head above water that I will continue to see you and cling to you and not be tempted to fall away, to fail against you or sin against you. And that in this, that you would protect me from Satan's schemes because I know he's constantly working. And that's where the prayer ends. And some of you are like, wait a second, uh, where's that whole line about for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever? Where, where's, that, where's that at? Guys, um, understand that part of the Lord's Prayer that you've recited maybe thousands sometimes is actually not a part of Jesus' original instruction to his disciples. So you won't find that in scripture. That was something added in later. Now, I would, I would add this. It's not wrong to pray that because I actually think this is a beautiful way to end this prayer because what I love is that this prayer starts with God-centeredness and when you add that part in, it also helps you end with a God-centeredness to put our focus on God and who he is and his worship, his kingdom, his will, and then to end by declaring his power.
and his kingdom and his desires. So I think it's beautiful to pray. It's beautiful to pray. Church, I want to say this as we just close, having looked at these verses, and I apologize, you know, you got to go through it pretty quick. It's a lot to take in, but I want you to understand what you're praying. And I want to get into, I want to practice even just how to pray this as we're going to close by praying this together. But I, I just want to put this, this like plea before you. Because I know in talking with a lot of people, like we almost have like a distaste toward the Lord's Prayer because you grew up praying it so often without any meeting meeting, you just have rejected it. You don't want to do it anymore. You don't want us to do it anymore. Your voice goes into that monotone, like our father's in heaven. And like, you, like, you, like you, you've got that still wired into you. And let me plead with you, don't reject the Lord's prayer. Redeem it. That's what I want to do as a church. I want to redeem these words, not reject these words. And what I want us to learn how to do is not just like pray the Lord's prayer, but learn how to pray through the Lord's prayer. To use these like six points as even like anchor points for our own prayer life. That as we hit our knees, we can even use this guide to add fervor and direction to our own prayers. To keep us oriented the right direction. And so here's what I want to do as we close our time. I want to pray the Lord's prayer together. We're going to do this a little differently, though, because what I want to do is I want to pray a line of the Lord's Prayer, and then I'm going to pray kind of my own line into it, and I'm just going to create space for you to pray where you are, just between you and the Lord, and then I'll pray another line and add a line to it, and then give you space to pray quietly where you are, and we'll just walk through this together. Is that all right? All right. I'm going to ask you one more thing, just because I've already asked a lot. If there is space around you and you're comfortable doing this, guys, I would love for us to hit our knees together in prayer as well. I think heart posture and body posture are linked together. So, yeah, church, let's pray. Father. It is an absolute miracle and a display of grace that we can call you that, Father. And thank you, Jesus, for giving us that gift. Your name be honored as holy. God, the orienting center of our lives is you. You are the one that we worship, not just in song, but with our lives. And I pray for there to be a rightful awe that defines our lives, an awe of who you are. And that that awe would not just be here and in this place, but would be in our world that all people everywhere would carry a rightful awe of you.
your kingdom come. Lord God, I do pray for you, Lord Jesus, to come back and come back soon, to take this broken world and make everything right and good, to give eternal life to those who have trusted in you and to bring us into your presence in which there will be abundant joy. your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, as we look around the world around us, there's not much that resembles heaven here. And I pray for that to change, at least for that to look a bit different in my own household, my own life, within our church, that the things that you desire, the things that you love, the things that define every place where you are would define my world and who I am. God, would you give us today our daily bread? I love, and I've totally missed it, that each of these requests here are in the plural form, our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. And God, protect us from evil. Keep us from temptation, Lord. So I pray as I pray for our daily bread, I pray for all of your people here, that you would continue to meet all of our needs, that you would put food on our tables, as you continue to provide through jobs, continue to keep a roof over our heads, continue to sustain our daily lives. forgive our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. God, I know that you've forgiven me and have forgiven me since the first time I asked you for forgiveness, but each day, Lord, there is a new list of sins and wrongs that I want to put before you and continue to say, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me for those? And God, as we receive your grace, would we be a people defined by grace? lastly we pray that you would not lead us into temptation but in those times of trials and testing that we would not be tempted to sin but would cling all the more tightly to you which is the purpose of trials and testing and that God you would protect us from the evil one who longs to steal to kill and to destroy all that we are and all that we have in you so would you protect us?
For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.